So apparently, apparently, cheating is a problem in the United States. Apparently, apparently, apparently we are a nation of cheaters. We cheat in schools. Your friends, your colleagues at West and East are cheating. And it's not just them. It's like MIT, Harvard, Princeton have all had cheating scandals in the last decade. Apparently, students do not understand that when you take a paper in its entirety from someplace on the internet and then turn it in with your name, that's stealing. It's called plagiarism, that's cheating. In 2002, they did a study of 12,000 high school students, and 74% of them admitted to cheating at least once in the last year. Three out of four. Said one student, we're graded on a curve. Others cheat. Why wouldn't I? Grades determine your future. I love what this student did on a test. She just made the rounds. I don't know if you've seen her. The teacher said, for the test, you can bring in a three by five card. But the teacher didn't say three by five inches. So she bought in a three by five card. (laughs) The teacher did adjust the syllabus and specify (laughs) inches so that won't happen again, okay? But cheating shows up in sports. Those of you football fans, need I remind you of Inflategate, (laughs) right? And then there's the use of PEDs, performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, It's not uncommon to have Olympic medalists have to return their medals because after the fact, it was found out that they were doping and using something that was banned by the Olympic Committee. I even learned something when I was researching. I didn't know about flopping and diving. Right, that you do to get the opponent fouled as if they touched you and made you fall. It's a thing, and it's used strategically in games. Cheating, it shows up in relationships. There's a statistic that goes around that says 50 to 60% of men in the United States have cheated in a relationship. So ladies, if you're going out on two dates this week, right, that means one of them is a, is a cheater. Now. That's in all relationships. When you actually get into the hard data and you, and you just look at only married people, it's one out of four. So 25% of men cheat in a relationship. What's interesting is that for decades, the number of women who cheated, percentage of women who cheated was like 8%, 12%. was nothing compared. In 2016, they're nearly identical. The rates of cheating now between men and women in the United States in relationships is about the same. So we cheat. We cheat in school. This is the cheat-o-meter, right? You go from midlife crisis to sociopath um, with some steps in the men in between a sleazeball. We cheat in school. We cheat in sports. We cheat in relationships. You could say that we are the United States of cheaters. We cheat. It's what we do. And a lot of this cheating A lot of this behaving dishonestly, this cutting corners, this shafting people is because we feel overwhelmed. We feel like we have to. We're under so much pressure that we feel like we have to cheat in order to get ahead. So because we, of how we live life today, I want to say to you that you're going to be tempted to cheat. You're going to be tempted to cheat. You are. 
And you're going to be tempted to cheat with your use of time. And what's going to happen is you're going to be tempted to cheat the people who matter the most in your life because there's only so many hours in the day and you've got to cut corners somewhere and you're under a lot of pressure. Andy Stanley uh, developed this idea almost 20 years ago and he said this, because you have so much to do, because you have so much on your plate, because the demands of work, of school, of extracurricular activities are so high, you're going to have to cut corners. You're going to have to cheat someone and you're going to be tempted because it's easy to shaft the wrong people, to shaft the wrong things. So therefore, you need to become a good cheater. You need to cheat wisely. You need to make sure that the people and things that matter the most are the people and things that you cheat the least, okay? This is an important topic, okay? As your pastor, I cheat people all the time. I do. I, there have been times and seasons where I've cheated my family. Ministry demands have been off the chart. There have been needs. There have been times I've cheated the church. I've cheated generations. There are programs that needed to be started, things that needed to be led, and it just didn't happen. There are times uh, that I've cheated chamber responsibilities. There have been times I've, uh, there was one month about a year or so ago, and I, I did a, helped a class at Asbury University. Asbury University got 110% of me that month. Like everything else in my life got cheated. Um, and so what I want to say to you is that not everyone gets my best. Not everyone gets my 110%. Somewhere, someone in any given week is getting the shaft from Max Vanderpool. And the same thing's true with you. Like swim team at Asbury, it doesn't matter what it is, something somewhere along the way is getting the shaft. You cheat too. Uh, at work, if you're on Facebook for two hours out of the workday, I hate to tell you this, but work is getting the shaft. Like I know they don't pay you to be on Facebook. Or when you're homesick with a kid, again, uh, work is getting the shaft. I know there's a lady in our church who her job is so critical, they don't have anyone else to do this job. It has to be done every seven days. The, the work has to be done. So when she takes a day off because she's sick or there's a funeral or whatever, like she just has to add that into the rest of the week. Okay, so it happens. And then there's things where we cheat at home, right? Because we've got a degree or we're, we're having to work extra hours. We're, we're coming home late or we had to pull an extra shift. Um, it happens, we cheat. Now, if you're young, if you're 14 years old, 16 years old, 28 years old, you're not married, you're unencumbered. Unencumbered, if you catch what I mean. Here's what I want you to know. You're cheating too. And one of the biggest ways that young people in the United States cheat is they end up cheating themselves. And I want to talk about that at the end of the message. A huge way that you're cheating yourself. But another thing is, you've been on the receiving end. See, you have a mom and dad, and you've been on the receiving end when mom and dad's focus has been on you, and you've been on the receiving end when mom and dad's focus has been elsewhere, and you felt it. And maybe you didn't want to say anything. Maybe dad promised something, and they didn't come through. Or mom was like, well, do that unicorn brownies for school, and then this and that happened, and the unicorn brownies didn't happen, right? And you were like, just this week. We had a family promise. We were going to Mammoth Cave. Dad got sick. Guess what? Didn't go to Mammoth Cave. It happens. It happens. All right? So why is it, why is it that we tend to cheat the people and things that matter the most? 
Why do we do that, right? I think there are a couple of reasons. One, the rewards are not immediately felt. When it, in my marriage with Jenny, like there's not a box that I can check off the list. Ding, marriage this week, chick. And if I ever have that attitude, she lets me know. She has said to me in the past, Max Vanderpool, I am not something that you can check off your list, right? And there's a fury in it, <laughs> rightfully so. Uh, the rewards are not, I, with relationships, it's not like a bank account where I get my statement from my mutual fund and I see, wow, it's got $2,000 in there. I can retire, you know. <laughs> it, it's not immediately felt. And, and the other reason is because we're so overwhelmed because we can't do everything that's expected of us, and because they love us, we assume that here, I, I just need to focus here, it's just for a little bit, just hang on for a little while, I'll come back, I will catch up later. We assume that we can do that, okay? So again, today, here's my bottom line, in case those of you miss it, right? Make sure the people and things that matter the most are the people and things you cheat the least. And I'm talking about over the course of a decade, over the course of a lifetime. In order to unpack this, I want to look into the life of Nehemiah. I think Nehemiah can help us because uh, in you're going to need focus, you're going to need clarity, and you're going to need a rallying cry. And I think Nehemiah can help us with that. Um, in 587 BC, uh, the Babylonians invaded Judah and they destroyed Jerusalem, and they launched a massive resettlement campaign. So they took Jews from here in Jerusalem and Judea, and they marched them all the way over here to Babylon. Massive resettlement, tens of thousands of people. 70 years later, King Cyrus decided that he would allow some Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But the people who returned got distracted, they got a little demoralized, and they stopped working on it, and they stopped following some of God's commands. And when Nehemiah heard the report of what things were like in Jerusalem, in chapter one, verse four, it says, he says, I sat down and wept. And he wept for days, he cried for days. This was the capital of his homeland, and people were demoralized, and the very important thing that was going to get done had just been left to the side. In chapters 2, 3, and 4 of Nehemiah, there's a series of God-ordained events that take Nehemiah to Jerusalem, that get the people there motivated to finish what they've started, to secure the temple and rebuild the walls. And in chapter 6, Nehemiah is close to finishing. And that's where we're going to pick things up. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 and following. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained, though we had not yet set up the doors in the gates. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But I realized they were plotting to harm me. So I replied by sending this message to them. I am engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come meet with you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same reply. So the walls are finished, but the gates are not hung in the doors. And 
the Jews and Nehemiah, they had opponents. There were people living in the region that didn't want Jerusalem to have walls and security. And they opposed the work. And so these people listed here, Sanballat, etc., they send a message that's basically, hey, Nehemiah, let's be friends. Let's bury the hatchet. Seems like a good thing, right? Peace between Jews and Arabs in the Middle East? That's got to be like a good thing. And yet, what does Nehemiah say? What does he say? I am engaged in a great work, so I can't come. He knows this is a distraction. Some of you ought to adopt this rallying cry when it comes to your marriage, when it comes to some friendships, when it comes to the faith community. I am engaged in a great work. I can't come. I will not come down to meet with you. Right? Let's pick, keep following, verses five and following. The fifth time, Sanballat's servant, uh, servant came with an open letter in his hand, and this is what it said. There is a rumor among the surrounding nations, and Geshem tells me it's true, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel, and that's why you're rebuilding this wall. According to his reports, you plan to be their king. He also reports that you've appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim about you. Look, there's a king in Judah. You can be very sure this report will get back to the king. So I suggest you come and talk it over with me. I replied, there's no truth in any part of your story. You're making up the whole thing. They were just trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop us from our work. Okay, so... The, the tactics change. So now it's innuendo and rumor. And they send this. This would have been a rolled tablet that would have been secured with some clay and wax and a seal normally. A private message. But this message is different. It can be opened and read. And when you're the messenger, right, delivering a message, and there's one in here, and it's an important message, and you could kind of read it, what's going to happen? You read it. So Geshem, they know that the messenger has told his friends and his friends have told their friends, oh my goodness, did you hear about Nehemiah? No, what? Out it comes. Why is it that when you, we hear something and it's something really bad about someone, we just believe it immediately? <laughs> in 3,000 years, we have not changed in that regard. Did you hear about the president of United Bank? No, really? What? I can't believe it. Okay, and off we go. So they're using now criticism. They're criticizing Nehemiah. You really want to become king. Wasn't true, but they used it. Verses 8 and following, and I got ahead of myself. There's no truth in any part of your story. They were just trying to intimidate us, imagining they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued the work with even greater determination. I'll show them. Later, I went to visit Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the grandson of Mehethabel, who was confined to his home. And he said, let's meet together inside the temple and bolt the doors. Your enemies are coming to kill you tonight. So the third thing they used to throw at Nehemiah to get him to stop is... Hey, boss, did you hear, like, they're going to kill you tonight? Uh, fear. Boom, 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 boom. Okay? So 
Nehemiah faces some significant things to get him down off the wall and to stop doing what he's doing. Does he give in? Does he give in? No, he doesn't. Should someone in my position run from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life, which would have been inappropriate for some reasons I won't get into? I realized that God had not spoken to him, but he had uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. They were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin. Then they'd be able to accuse me and discredit me. Nehemiah faced three things. He faced distractions. Let's be friends. Come, let's meet in the the Valley of Ono. When it comes to the great work that you're doing in terms of relationships, you're gonna face distractions. And the distractions you face are not gonna be, hey, come, let's go to Vegas and get drunk and you know, you know, do some crack cocaine. And you know, that's not the temptation. The temptation that's gonna come your way is good stuff, good things, good opportunities, instead of what's best. The other thing that Nehemiah faced was criticism. Oh, you're planning to rebel. That's why you're rebuilding the walls. When you have a determined focus on the things that matter most, on the people that matter most, you're going to get criticism. You know, Dave's here at the office every night till eight. You seem to talk about this family a lot. You're going to get criticism. It's going to happen. The other thing Nehemiah faced was just outright fear. They're going to kill you, and you're going to face fear. I'm going to lose my job. They'll never get into college if they don't have all these activities. Like, you're going to have fear is going to drive decisions. But again, when it comes to some key relationships in your life, your husband, your wife, your kids, some very good friends, the faith community, you're doing a great work, and you cannot come down. Let me ask a question. In the last 30 days, it being October 15th, going back to September, who in your life have you cheated the most? Who's gotten the shaft the most in the last 30 days? And then secondly, what needs to change? What needs to change? Let me, let me talk to you younger people for a moment, okay? For some of you, you may need to have a conversation with your mom or dad because the truth of the matter is in the pursuit of their degrees, in the pursuit of job, in the pursuit of the promotion or whatever it is that they were working hard for, you felt like whatever that was, that that came first. When I started out in the ministry, I asked, and, I, and, I, and when I met someone who was a pastor's kid, I, if I got to know them really well, I always asked them this question. So tell me. What was more important to your dad, to your mom, who was in ministry? Was it you or the church? And they always had an answer. They didn't have to think about it. They knew. Okay, so for some of you who are younger, it's possible that you may need to have a conversation with your mom and dad. And you may need to talk about some things. I feel hurt, or I feel like you weren't there because of this or that. All right? Now, there may be some legit things. You may get into a big old conversation, but you may need to get that out on the table. Um, now, there is, if, if you're a kid, if, if you're thinking in terms of your parents, um, here's what I tell, I remind my kids when it comes to people like, mom's first, you're next in line. <laughs> so, if there's another parent in the mix and like you love them and they love you and that kind of stuff, like they should trump the kids. So, that, that's the first thing. The second thing I want to talk to you that are 14, 16, 18 is this. 
you're gonna get invitations to hang out with friends. You're gonna get invitations to do things. Say yes. One of the greatest temptations of this generation is to stay home and do nothing. One of the greatest temptations of this generation is to stay home and do nothing. And here's what happens. 10 years from now, 15 years from now, when you're talking with your friends, what you're gonna be saying is, hey, Remember when Isaiah dot, 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 that doesn't happen when you stay home and say no to invitations, okay? So I just wanna, I beg you, I implore you, when you get invitations, say yes, say yes, because you're gonna make some memories and log some important hours with your friends, all right? For those of you that may be slightly older than 10, and maybe you've got a marriage or two under your belt and some chitlins here in other states, right? What would I want to say to you in terms of application? When it comes to key relationships, schedule it, guard it, don't give it away. Schedule it, guard it. It's, it's logging hours and it's logging the right hours. Um, there are some times in my week that are fairly sacred. Um, one time is Saturday mornings. I get a lot of, would you speak at this, Max? Would you speak at that, Max? Would you do this? Hey, a bunch of guys are getting to breakfast, Max. Da, 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 da. Do you know who gets Saturday mornings unless she's sleeping and can't and is in total pain? Jenny Vanderpool. Saturday mornings are Jenny Vanderpool's time. I don't, get, I don't tend to give that away. And then most Sundays, I'm not available to go out for lunch after church. It's a big thing. I feel the weight of that a lot, but there's somebody else that gets my time three Sundays out of four. Okay, so you have to determine when this happens, but schedule it. Don't give it away. Um, the, the second thing is, with key people in your life, do one-on-ones. I know when, for those of us that are parents, it's easy to think, well, if we've got all the kids, we're logging the hours, but they reach an age and a stage when one-on-one -on -one is magical. For teenagers, it's in the car. For younger kids, it's a bedtime, but, you know, there's also these moments, things that you do. When you schedule one-on-one -on -one with somebody, and I'm talking about good friends too. Uh, I have a really good friend that I've known for 24 years. And I get in my car and I drive all the way to the northwest side of Lexington just to have lunch with him because he can't get free. I make that commitment because I love him. He's a really good friend, right? So when you schedule one-on-ones, what you're saying to that person is, I love you. You matter. You're important. For, for also, for those of us that are parents, you're going to hit times when family key relationships get the shaft. You're in a degree program. The boss has come in and said, it's mandatory overtime for the next 30 days. If you say no, you're fired. Oh, I, I like eating, so I'm going to do overtime for the next 30 days. I mean, there are seasons, and it happens. This is when you should sit your kids down and talk about that and verbally, you know, talk about what's happening. Hey, want to let you know, in the next 30 days, I'm pulling overtime. This is what that means. We're having macaroni and cheese every night for dinner. Woo! <laughs> okay? Whatever it is, but make sure that you have an end date or an end time in mind. Here's why this is important. Nobody, and remember last week when we talked about the fact that all of us have an expiration date? No one, when they hit their expiration date, says to themselves, man, I wish I had had a cleaner house. I wish, I wish I had spent that money and gotten the Roomba and had it run every night. I just, why did I not do that? No one at their expiration date ever says, 
man, I wish I had worked more. Why did I work only 50 hours a week? I mean, I could have been doing 70 or 80 hours, especially when I was in my prime. No one ever says that at their expiration date. No one. Okay? No one ever says, man, I wish I had gotten another degree. I only had two, but I really felt if I would gotten that third one, no one does it. 16 years ago, um, I was an executive pastor in a growing, medium-sized church. And uh, we had a lot of stuff going, and we had a lot of stuff happening. We had Saturday morning trainings, and we had missions weekends, and we had youth group stuff. And I mean, we just, we were go, go, go. And so I would put in a 50-hour work week, Monday through Friday, and I was gone five or six nights out of the week, and I worked most weekends. And I personally oversaw the budget, the staff, and about three significant ministries in the church. And there was a evening, I think it was a Thursday evening, and I was going off to yet another meeting, and my four-year-old son and his friend start picking me. John says, hey, Daddy, don't go. Don't go tonight. And then his little friend Caleb did me in. And Caleb goes, yeah, Uncle Max. Yeah, Uncle Max, you always are going to meetings. And he just turned that sword. Your little friend Caleb, little devil. <laughs> little devil. That night, I sat down with Jenny, and I was like, I cannot be this kind of pastor anymore. I cannot, if ministry means that I am always gone and my family is always coming in fifth or tenth, I can't do this. We've, this has got to change. I don't know if you know this, but one of the emotional reasons that Generations Community Church exists is because I didn't want to cheat my family the most over the long haul. I don't know if you figured this out, but did you know that most churches our size in this city, they have an organized men's ministry and women's ministry? Have you noticed that most churches in this city have like a midweek? We Southerners love our midweeks. We do. It's Wednesday. What are you doing? I'm going to church, prayer meeting. We, and it's a way you keep busy. And the funny thing is the way church works, anything under about 1,000 or 2,000 people, if the pastor's not there, the people in that ministry feel like, oh, we're not that important. He didn't come. She didn't come. Right? So... This is a very streamlined place in part because we don't want you that volunteer and labor and, and, and lead things in this ministry uh, to, to basically sacrifice some key relationships for Jesus, okay? This is really, really important, gang, and I just want you, I want you to remember you are doing a great work. You're doing a great work when it comes to that person that you made vows to, when it comes to those kids that you want to kill every other Thursday, you are doing a great work and you cannot come down, okay? Remember that, please. I want to pray for you.